0: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
1: Thank you everybody for coming. Um, Thank you, Ashley, for organizing for me to be here. It is an honor and a privilege, and it is a deeply emotional visit, as you must imagine. Um, Not least, because uh, the war uh, is still ongoing, there is little end in sight. Uh, The reports of the horrors and the effects of this war. rolling out daily and uh, also at the times like this when you need your comrades more than any other time there are those in our ranks who doubt that Ukraine deserves help and that feels like a stabbing wound every single day and that's the one that hurts most. So I want to take us uh, into the discussions about, into this contemplations about what is imperialism today, what is going on in Ukraine, and what me, what solidarity and security and military concerns we need to be thinking about today, so that wars like this never have a place to be ever again. All discussions of real life crises uh, and uh, solidaristic responses to those crises, especially when talking about wars, must be rooted in the material and ideational reality of those crises and wars. I had an understanding when I got uh, self-recruited into the international left movement that uh, one thing and one thing we all share in common, and that is the method that Marx and Engels left us with, that is historical materialism. And all of our understandings of the world around us need to be rooted in the specificities uh, of historic conditions that we're trying to understand. It is the method, it is not the theory, again. So considering the amount of questions and statements that are floating around um, uh, that are as frequent as they are unhelpful, I want to start with an exercise of imagination. Imagine that we are not in the heart of world capitalism, but in a small country, with economically small country, with a small military, economic, economically predatory ruling class, foreign debt dependency, and an ex-colonizer across the border. An ex-colonizer who you have historic and deeply problematic ties with, and who won't let go of a sense of superiority over your country, no entitlement to it and its resources. Imagine that the ex-colonizer keeps telling you that you are not a nation, your language is made up, by the way they all are, uh, your culture (laughs) is fake, same goes here. Uh, they're, all, they're all fictions that we choose to perform daily, aren't they? Uh, so your culture is fake, and you are nothing, but, it, but you are also a nothing that the, your ex-colonizer must have to himself, and the use of male gender here is deliberate. So this colonizer plays trade wars with you, cuts off gas supply and bribes your politicians when all else fails. He invades. Once he does, he gets away with it. And you talk, and you try to appease, and he does it again, more brutally and violently this time. The land that fed you is being bombed. Your comrades are in the cellars, on the front line, in mass graves, in torture camps. Tens of millions of people are displaced, families torn torn apart, lives lost and or transformed forever, and there is no end in sight. Where will you turn then? How do you defend yourself from missiles? I can tell you one thing, that the peace banner won't do it. Failing to understand the need for military supplies and the need to seek military supplies from NATO member states and protection of NATO is in itself a stance conditioned by inability and unwillingness to understand the lived reality of the international security disorder nor the nature of the Russian invasion. I'm no fan of NATO, nor are my comrades. But where exactly are you supposed to turn? The the, the supplies from Cuba are still on the horizon. No international solidaristic missile defense systems are on route. So until there is that option, we go for what is available. It is as plain as that. So the reality before us is as such, Russia launched a war of imperialistic genocidal aggression against Ukraine, which is now in its ninth year and the most violent and criminal it has been to date since February this year. It has been in the making since before the first invasion of March 2014, marked by the annexation of Crimea and the incursion of Donbass and everything that followed since. And it was not just Donbass, the south of Ukraine was also contested for quite some time, and we can talk about it later. Russia twists narratives of history stages, fake reportage, spits in the face of international law and institutions, Again, of course, it's not only Russia who's done it historically, but we are not talking about everybody else today. We are talking about Russia invading Ukraine. So let's leave what about it for a different day. In fact, it was uh, Russia who actually was supposed to protect Ukraine in case of aggression in exchange for Ukraine's nuclear disarmament. Uh, that was um, uh, stipulated in the Budapest Memorandum signed in 1994. Ro- Ukraine, when you were to start all apart, had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And uh, it gave it up in exchange of st- for security assurances, and resu- assurances from the countries who are helping it most today, which is the United States and United Kingdom. So they're actually honoring their, their obligations, NATO status apart. And the Russian Federation, who actually, instead of protecting Ukrainian borders and their sovereignty, invaded the country twice. China and France also offered some tentative assurance, but also uh, French diplomats have told Kravchuk, the president at the time of Ukraine, that he has been down by that agreement, and they were right. So by now, the war has rapidly escalated into a worldwide crisis. That is set against the backdrop of economic recession and the cost of living crisis that has been lagging since 2008, and having been have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 suppression approaches globally. It is fueling an energy crisis, food crisis, and riots in a number of countries, and we've only seen the beginning of it. The threat of the world war three is still on the table, as is the nuclear. Uh, catastrophe. And as far as I understand the situation, it is more likely to come from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant than it is from the use of nuclear weapons. Putin is all sorts of things, but he's not crazy. He has his own logic, and we need to understand that. He knows that should Russia use any form of nuclear weapons, the response from NATO will annihilate Russia much faster before he can spit uh, into the face of another diplomat. Uh, What we have seen also in this uh, war that, again, is in its ninth ninth year, that appeasement doesn't, didn't, and will not work. It doesn't work with narcissistic abusers. It will not work with Putin. It never worked with dictators. It simply does not work. This war is as much about consolidation of power in Russia as it is about imperialistic land and resource grab. Uh, And a lot of the uh, insane TV... um, uh, coverage that is being produced in Russia is done primarily for domestic consumption. They are manufacturing, legitimizing myths for further oppression of Russian workers. If we want to be solidaristic with them, then we need to get, make sure that Putin's regime falls. Because this war is not led by Russia, but by the Russian regime and those who have fallen for its indoctrination. There are serious interna- there are serious security questions about international security architecture that arise from this war, which many on the left are not comfortable uh, are not are not comfortable having practicable solutions to. But material reality is a stubborn thing, and it must be reckoned with. How did we end up in this mess? So this is where we are. How did we end up here? Um, what does it tell us about the nature of, inter- of contemporary imperialism? As well as, um, uh, and as always, to understand what what all of those things mean, we need to turn to history and political economy for answers. We need to understand the class politics of what the Russo-Ukrainian war is about. And no, it's not a war in Ukraine. It's not a Ukrainian war. It's either a Russian invasion and the Russo-Ukrainian war. Let's please not spare Russia responsibility when we talk about this war. And it's quite frustrating that the kind of the of the general tendency in the coverage uh, in the major news outlets of this war always refers to war in Ukraine, Ukrainian war, war. Where, why did it start, who started this war? Let's name the aggressor. So we're going to um, historical materialism, so here we go. But why, why did we end up in all of this mess? The demise of USSR marked the beginning of the biggest, most recent expansion of the capitalist empire, as well as the sunset of the last significant counterweight to the US-led capitalism uh, and democracy slash election world, world order. Uh, and I'm talking about an ideological counterweight and sort of like alternative ways of doing things. There were problems in USSR, we can discuss them later, but I hope for the sake of this conversation it's clear what I mean. The post-Soviet space, us in that space don't like that term, but you know what I mean, uh, and Ukraine in particular, uh, are because of geography on the crossings of reinvigorated geopolitical rivalries. And conflicting agents of the empire of capital. I use the metaphor of empire of capital, uh, capital because it's not quite just about the states; it's about the world order uh, and the system that underpins it. And that empire has its own internal economic, uh, uh, internal competi- uh, competitions and shifting special and social boundaries. It is torn by inequalities and economic crisis, predatory capital, homegrown and from elsewhere various forms of conflict and reinvigorated struggle for geopolitical presence between Russia and the New Old West. That all is there, and that's true. But that's not necessarily the main reason why Russia has invaded Ukraine. The empires and imperialisms cannot be reduced to state boundaries and their assumed associated interests. Uh, Yet they do have a geopolitical dimension, which is very important, and in that sense Ukraine fell victim to the relentless spread of this empire of capital, where Russian and Western capitalist geopolitical imperialisms collided. That empire of capital spreads with historic and deliberate unevenness, as we also are quite familiar with, and that involves politics and geopolitics and economic uh, and social relations, and produces geographies of dependencies, extraction and exploitation with the dimension of militarism, as we as a kind of ultimate form of coercion into uh, being controlled. Imperialism in the 21st century must therefore be seen as a, as a combination of geopolitical and economic imperialisms, which are more than one and they are competing, yet ideologically they remain capitalist to the bone. Russia is not an ideological counterweight to the United States. Quite a few pe- people have, uh, have not read the news when uh, <laughs> USSR fell apart somehow. And they haven't been following what was happening in Russia. It's a horrendous predatory capitalist state that is the biggest enemy of its own workers. And I will come to that in a minute. So as the states compete in the process uh, in this uh, capitalist uh, empire system, they compete uh, with or via imperialisms in the global capitalist systems, and they too become transformed in that process, as did Russia. And they reproduce it by assuming increasingly expressive, capitalistic forms. Uh, In in that competition, they rely on a combination of means that are available to them, social, political, economic, ideological, geopolitical, and military, while their societies and their institutions are also transformed and co-opted through the process of what Gramsci described as passive revolution. And these processes are where the ruling bloc acts as, uh, as often willing and responsive implementers Uh, and beneficiaries of marketization reforms, and the masses are also being transformed on the level of consciousness to perceive those reforms as benefiting them, while in reality they are losing out and have social benefits taken away from them. And they know it too. This is why we have protests, this is why we have unrest, this is why um, uh, Ukrainians have been in the streets so many times um, in the last few decades, and not only. Yet market fetishization, meaning treated marketization, is the only viable reform option. We all know about the infamous end of history and uh, Fukuyama, (laughs) the greatest thinker that uh, shouldn't have been born. Uh, (laughs) But market fetishization um, uh, is the legitimizing myth, and I've talked about the kind of mythology and legitimization that underpinned Ukraine's post soviet transformation. And the the, uh, myth of the market uh, is one of them, one of those big ones that were sold to all post-Soviet countries. That that myth, um, uh, on which the on that myth lies, the dominance of the neoliberal system uh, of governance, Um, and international organizations and financial institutions and lobby groups and associations channel uh, further and perform that governance. And in Ukraine, there was a, an array of uh, Western lobby groups set up. Uh, of course, the first one was the American Chamber of Commerce. They couldn't wait. Um, and uh, then uh, uh, a few other ones were set up. I, I talk about that's The most boring chapter in the book, by the way. If anybody wants to kind of skip a chapter, that's the one you want to skip. Because um, you already know what lobby groups do anyway. But it was important to write it down. So with the helping hand of, um, of those different institutions, both Russia and Ukraine underwent capitalist transformation, yet with their own idiosyncrasies. So uh, in, uh, Russia went through shock therapy that Ukraine didn't go through, and at the end, it ended up being a state run paternalistic oligarchy. state run oligarchy, capitalism with imperialistic ambitions, that's what it is. While Ukraine became an illiberal plutocracy. this is what I call it at the very least. Um, And the crucial difference between these two unfolded in the remaking of the country's institutional backbone, i.e. the state. So what happened on the level of the state is actually really important. Because uh, capitalists like to tell us that they like the small state, but that's actually bullshit. They absolutely love the state. It's right in the wealth of nations, of Adam Smith, that the state's role is to protect what? Private property from the poor mob. They never disliked the state. civil magistrate was set up for that reason, and now the institution of the state in capitalist society performs that function of guarding private property, right? And that's why we talk about abolition of the state, but we do not want the institution changed, we want the function of it changed, because there are a lot of really useful institutions that state as an abstract concept should be performing in every society, but not the one that it performs in capitalist society. So, uh, Empire capital relies on that uh, institutions through, that that kind of looks after its interests of various social groups, parties, movements, and blocs, and uh, and those are organised to secure interest, of course, uh, of some at expense of the other. Where ideally all of those can be negotiated via reform of institutionalised social dialogue. Right? But, that we've we've seen what social dialogue policies are doing in the uh, in the EU, and it's quite fascinating. I can tell you some great anecdotes about that later. So as those different social groups and classes often have contradictory interests, of course, the state, as Polanza has told us, is this kind of you know, constellation of contradictions between social groups and constellation of agencies uh, that are crystallized in specific legislature that includes or, and or excludes certain groups from access to various resources. In its neoliberal phase, however, the new imperialism needs a specific type of state one that must acknowledge and accommodate the transforming mechanisms of accumulation and capitalist class struggle globally, that, are, um, uh, that there are classes and there are fractions in each state that favor policies which go contrary to the interest of state slash society. Um, and in that sense, in my work, I talk about us needing to not look at nation states as nation states, but rather look at state society capital complexes. I, kind of, I, I developed this on off the back of Ulan Zas and Robert Cox. Because capital, in the neoliberal phase of capitalist uh, empire, uh, has a, set function as a as functions as a semi-autonomous force through uh, transnationalization of accumulation. I'm going to drop all of this terminology because I, I feel like I'm making like, you know, people are beginning to snooze. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Um, and uh, of course, um, in, 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 in specific states, for example, so sovereign functioning of a specific states, uh, states as institutions, for this, in a barbarian sense, for the sake of society, is impossible when the interests of transnational accumulation come before societies. And in that sense, uh, countries like Ukraine, not only the United States, you name it, can only be rebuilt on socialist principles. And my organization, Social uh, Social Movement, Democratic Socialists in Ukraine, together with independent trade unions of Ukraine and selected NGOs, are building towards that, bit by bit, in very trying circumstances every day. So, back to Ukraine. Ukraine's integration into the global capitalist economy meant abandoning planned economy. Because it's a horrible thing to plan, even though everybody does it absolutely all the time, because otherwise markets don't work. Uh, Who knew? Um, and uh, with that abandonment of planned economy, welfare functions of the Soviet state, uh, Soviet state were also abandoned uh, for, this, for the sake of planning for the market. So it was this, this kind of transformation was premised on a mythological idea of this transition to the market, as I mentioned before, and it's been sold internationally by organizations like International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and in Europe specifically, European Bank of Reconstruction and Development was set up to help all of these Stupid countries to become markets because they didn't know what they were doing. How did they survive till today? We need to come and explain to them how to run their economies. Uh, and they set up the, the journal of economic transition. Some of them phantasmagoria that gets published in it is is quite is quite something else. It would have been funny if it wasn't sad and didn't have real-life consequences. So that kind of uh, those those kind of transition modelers—they were modeling and planning that market, right? So this kind of idea that we don't like planning, we don't like states—it's it's all nonsense. Um, and why uh, World Bank and IMF are important here? Because. Uh, Post of apart, Ukraine, uh, as uh, other countries as well, uh, didn't have their own money left because Russia inherited the legal, the legal person, uh, person of the of the USSR with all the debts, but also all the money. So where do you go? You go to IMF, the lender of last resort for the state. And those loans come with conditions. You need to privatize, you need to liberalize, sell off, shrink the state, you name it. Oh, no, leave that part of the state that helps manage foreign investment. But the rest, please, you know, we don't need that. So whatever kind of looks under environmental degradation or labor rights, we don't like it. So one of the most uh, decisive components in Ukraine's institutional transformation was the existence of the so-called criminal political nexus. Uh, and the kleptocratic network that that was the kleptocratic network that ran the state apparatus through the state apparatus security institutions and the judiciary in Soviet republics. It existed in in Russia as well and, and a lot of other uh, places. Um, and uh, since, ni- since the 90s, Ukraine's now intruding block bloc utilized the multiplicity of already uh, available and constantly expanding mechanisms of making money, accumulation of capital, legal and extralegal. Uh, to uh, kind of build themselves into this kind of oligarchic block. They used offshoring of revenue, capital recycling, is FDI, tax avoidance and evasion, indirect subsidization of private enterprise, socialization of the costs. Well, nothing you don't read in the news of the United States on a daily basis. So they didn't quite invent anything, but they were quite creative with it. And so that's why instead of Ukraine being overrun by foreign companies, which to an extent it kind of is by now, you also have an emergence of massive financial industrial groups in the country. Uh, and that I discuss in my work why, why how and why that happened. And I'm going to kind of spare you all of the detail of it because it's just becoming a bit more technical. But I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions. But what emerged as a result? Uh, there was there was a bit of a power shift in that criminal political nexus. So in Ukraine, with, with Yanukovych, that kind of uh, uh, criminals slash uh, all criminal slash oligarchs went into power themselves. They became MPs. They organized political parties and they seized power. And like in a sense. There was a like strong consolidation in concentration of power uh, under Yanukovych, regimes and, uh, uh, Yanukovych regime, and then, and then that kind of pyramid of power that he's constructed with his so-called Donetsk family, because uh, their capital was from the industrial region from of Donetsk. Um, uh, with, with him fleeing to Russia, there has been the, the decentralization, kind of fracturing of power, and, and again, fighting happened. And the inability to kind of stabilize and have some sort of consolidated strategy by Ukrainian capitalists has led Ukraine to uh, uh, with 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 a lot of different contradictory in, uh, foreign relations and dependencies that that paralysed has paralyzed autonomy of decision making in the state. And you hear some of those things uh, being uh, being said when Ukraine is being accused as being, uh, being blamed or accused, whatever, labeled as a puppet of the West. Or puppet of the russia. It's a bit more complicated than that, but there are too many strings that are pulling in different directions because of the irresponsible thieves who were in charge and not all of them are gone uh, and then we can talk about that as well. But um, in Russia that flip didn't happen. it almost did but then security took control. So you have you have KGB around oligarchy uh, kind of a predatory state there. So it's it's quite it's quite a peculiar thing that those those both in those both states that kind of problem existed. So neoliberal cryptocracy that evolved in Ukraine, um, with this kind of inevitable rivalry over access to power, socio, economic, and political, and the inability to achieve this consolidated strategy between the dominant and contending blocs shaped Ukraine's post-Soviet history and destabilized the country from mm-hmm. within. Uh, because also in, ter- in the process of fighting for access to power through electoral politics, um, ukrainian oligarchs and their parties they hired political people who call themselves political technologists from russia who were all trained in the united states as pr agents <laughs> on all the same textbooks on the kind of you know dividing conquer electoral politics so you identify which constituency you can win where you can kind of have more support and uh and people who don't support you don't focus on them and it's the whole kind of divide and conquer politics and so all of these kind of narratives about there being two Ukrainians and somebody wanted to be part of the East and somebody wanted to be part of the West, uh, became a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy that has been manufactured through irresponsible electoral politics. The creation of the other within the country, it was those asshole oligarchs who had done it. Because they were, they were pitching people against each other and they have created this kind of breeding ground for civil confrontation become impossible in the uh, late 2013, early 2014, and we can talk about that later. But public frustration led to numerous protests through the years. The biggest of which you are familiar to you as the Orange Revolution of or Maidan One, and the Revolution of Dignity or Maidan Two. Um, Maidan uh, is is square, uh, and they kind of because you gather protests in the square, they became known as Maidan. And in my book, I talk about Ukraine being pregnant with the third Maidan uh, after the first invasion. Uh, but of course, the war is uh, interfering with that to an extent. But a lot of people who went to fight to the front, because they, they they, the achievements of the popular unrest in 2013-14 have been hijacked uh, by oligarchs who could utilize the, uh, the historical situation where Ukraine didn't have the commander-in-chief because Yanukovych fled. Uh, Putin goes into Crimea and sends his mercenaries into Donbass and uh, says that Ukraine can't uh, needs to be uh, disciplined or taken control over because it's taken over uh, by a legitimate government. And under the Ukrainian constitution, interim government, who all, by the way, were elected in previous elections, who have taken over from those who run away, they do not have a right to declare war or send troops anywhere. And that's why there was this kind of speedy election, presidential and parliamentary in 2014. And all the managed to kind of convince the voters that we need the president right now, we need somebody who's experience in politics. And that's why Poroshenko ended up being president. But every single person who was protesting and then went to the front were saying that once we're done kicking Russians out we're going to Kiev and we're shooting all of those assholes who have created this problem <laughs> in the first place. And they knew it very well, and I, I mentioned it in my book, that really weirdly some of those oligarchs who were made in power were one of the most interested people in that conflict never being over. Mm. Because it gave them a carte blanche on continuing to steal from the country. Uh-huh. Uh, it gave them a, a kind of a legitimizing sort of excuse to remain in power saying this is not the time to make serious shifts and all of that kind of nonsense. They're crooks, all I can say. Right. So I'm going to use uh, my uh, remaining time uh, to uh, come back to how this most recent invasion happened. Uh, there were some um, concerns that Russia has used, Russian, Russia, Putin's regime have used all sorts of different uh, reasons um, uh, as to why they have gone into Ukraine. Um, and I already mentioned that a lot of it, um, a lot, this is a neo-imperialistic aggression by Russia, as much as it is a class struggle in the struggle for national self-determination of Ukraine. And yes, also there is an inter-imperialistic struggle component to it. It, it is all in there. But it is not just one or the other. Like, you know, we shouldn't be jumping on oversimplified conclusions just because we can't be bothered and we don't have time to actually read up on what's going on. (laughs) There are competing imperialistic powers within the empire of capital that leaves fewer and fewer options for alternative world order, alternative politics. Uh, And the role of these international financial institutions and development banks is facilitating the rise of these predatory oligarchic regimes that help destabilize countries like Ukraine and many other. Um, and, but this legitimacy of security concerns that Russia, have been, uh, Russian, uh, Russia has been citing as a pretext for invasion are a pure fabrication that have been in the making for some time. There is no evidence to suggest that Ukraine was going to invade Russia. Uh-huh. And, and nor is it logical or was it logical for Ukraine to do so, especially when Russia amassed so many troops on its borders, like, yeah, let's wait for all of them to come here and then we invade. <laughs> so, um, in, yeah, so. Um, And since Zelensky became president, he actually uh, reduced the military budget. He's redirected some of the military expenditure to fix roads in the country. Maybe because his friends wanted to have better roads when they go to ski in the Carpathian mountains. I don't know. Quite likely. Um, But also a lot of them own companies that fix roads. That also helps. That's one way of kind of moving money around. So we need to remember that Russia invaded Ukraine eight years ago. And uh, Well, now, almost uh, eight and a half years ago, but what Russia has been infiltrating local population and sending sleeper agents in preparation for "Ruski Mir in Novorossiya" project, uh, setting up Russian TV propaganda channels and political technologists who have been fabricating the narrative that negates Ukraine's national, linguistic, and cultural identity as separate from Russia for decades. It has been happening for decades. There is loads of evidence of it. Should you wish to look for it. Uh, and anybody who lived in Crimea or in Boston in the south of Ukraine, they will tell you, like lots of local papers were full of all of that nonsense for years before the first invasion. They were, they were like, and there were journalists who were writing about it, like uh, Vitali Plotnikov, uh, and, uh, and and people were thinking that he's just, you know, kind of a bit off with the fair. like dramatizing things. Oh no! When people, one thing we're learning from this war, when people are promising to, threatening to invade you, you need to take them seriously. Um, so, Russia, of course, may have some concerns as to, uh, as they do say, that they are losing control over and access to Ukraine's economy and the Black Sea-deep port of uh, Sevastopol. Well, they had, till 2014, access to that port. So, what's your problem, people? Uh, but also, it's not in your country, so chill out. Um, <laughs> but those neo-imperialistic concerns, they are not security concerns. Ukraine was not threatening Russia. It, they, they were they were not concerns, they were entitlements. Mm-hmm. This is what we need to understand. Oh Russia or oh, Russia feels offended, they feel sensitive. I, I honestly do not care. <laughs> I am sorry, somebody is punching me in the face and I need to think about their feelings. How what this is this is absolutely sort of rape culture apologism. Mm-hmm. The Russian imperialist strategy today incorporates the elements of Russian Empire that was contemporary of the time of Lenin and the Russian revolutions. There were many in the Russian Empire, including Socialist Revolution in Ukraine. All of those Bolsheviks have killed after they've lured them into an alliance, and we can again talk about that later. There were people who wanted Ukraine to be a Socialist Republic, separate yet in the union with Russia, because they understood what cultural and linguistic imperialism are. And they have not disappeared through Soviet times, and they have been re re uh, resuscitated, if you like, and blown into this kind of Frankenstein version of resurrected Stalinism and imperialism and everything else uh, to its hegemonic project mix in its own form of imperialism with some sort of statism that is uh, more that is quite different from what U.S. imperialism is, for example, or or Chinese for that matter. This kind of legit, legitimizing narratives um, uh, that, um, that somehow Russia needed to free uh, Russian speakers from supposed Nazis who staged a coup in Ukraine in 2014, eventually became the need to topple the anti-Russian right Nazi regime in 2022. Should the special operations, so to speak, have gone to plan, which is hard to imagine as you in Ukraine want to live under Russian occupation, besides a tiny minority of sleepers and sympathizers of Ruskiy Mir, the nazification would have been conducted by purging the state administration, the army active and activist networks, rewriting history books and de-educating all to love Russia, re all to love Russia forcefully, uh, as, as Russia is the savior uh, of Ukrainians. But that was not to be, because resistance was too strong and too staunch, despite the, a lot of Western Uh, powers who are helping now, sitting there and waiting, like how long they can wait out to not help and then kind of settle for it, Washington, Germany, France, uh, France has a separate bloody conversation, Uh, you name it, if it wasn't for Boris Johnson shitting his pants because he was going to be kicked out of office and he wanted his Churchill moment that he never dreamt he was going to have in his life, I do not know where Ukraine would have been by today. And. We may not like all of these people, but we need to be re- uh, honest about what is going on on the ground here. Um, and so, this kind of um, rhetoric that Ukraine, Ru- Russian rhetoric, is that Ukraine has to be punished for not wanting to be in some sort of subjugation of Russia. Rape mentality, much narcissistic abuser, much. <laughs> like no, the, the thing is, like you know, those kind of uh, insights from criminology actually really useful to understand the dynamics that are going on here. Um, so I'm going to leave the dynamics that kind of go on on Russian TV, and I'm going to like finish with just uh, one short thing on self-determination. There are accusations that, you know, nationalism has no place in internationalism. Uh, uh, and, you know, we, we shouldn't be supporting nationalist movements. How about, we, we need to differentiate between nationalism as Eastern nationalism and civic nationalism for a start, and we need to differentiate nationalism of imperial powers versus nationalism as a fight for national self-determination. <laughs> Which Ukrainians are too white to fight against colonial, colonial power and be supported? The national question when connected to workers' rights and sovereignty in the context of capitalism, imperialism, be it in the Western or Russian uh, variation, take on a different shape. Indeed, it opens an opportunity for a different, more progressive and a truly autonomous version of the future of the Ukrainian state. And it is not linked, to however poorly demarcated boundaries of ethnic, linguistic, religious, or cultural puritan identity of the Ukrainian, uh, as important uh, as those social grouping and identifiers are to some individuals. They are many in any workers' nation. And Ukraine shall not fall into the trap uh, that some Western post colonial uh, studies uh, and movements often had, meaning identifying was oneself. As the other of your oppressor, because like we we saw some of that in uh, in in some strands of nationalism in Ukraine, but this is now actually as a result of this uh, latest aggression, Ukraine is emerging as a civic nation in earnest. Mm. You do not have this, like if you listen, if you read what's going on in Ukrainian papers, what comes out of politician mouths, what goes on in the news, uh, like how uh, solidarity works at the front, volunteer movement, you name it. Whoever calls themselves Ukrainians and wants to help, this is your country. This is what is happening in Ukraine right now. And those few hundred of people who wrapped themselves in swastika in 2014, can we please give it a rest, the country of proud boys? So, so we need to understand when accusations are thrown at Ukraine that it somehow had a fascist coup <coughs> January 2022. Um, in the United States had mu- got much closer to a right-wing coup than Ukraine ever will. Mm-hmm. Because we need to remind ourselves that in 2014 there was a parliamentary election in the state, in the condition of war, of aggression, the pretext of which, of which was that Ukraine is not a country, it's not uh, a nation, it never has been. And even then, not one nationalist party scraped enough votes to get party, uh, party seats in the parliament. Look at what's going on in Germany, look at what's going on in France. Imagine if in Ukraine there has been that many votes for a right-wing party. What kind of purity test does the victim of imperialist aggression have to pass to be helped? This is my question. (laughs) And then talks about pacifism and let's hold hands and talk. Well, we talked for eight years. It ended up in a much more aggressive war. Pacifism in a situation of a genocidal war as solidarity is actually war-enabling, it's assisting the perpetrator, moreover it is a position that is in reality a bourgeois luxury. Mm -hmm. No one in Ukraine can afford such a position and realize it fully as is evidenced by Ukrainian people's resistance and volunteer movement in arms and humanitarian. Individuals can afford not to participate nor should they be pushed to have specific positions. But countries and political organizations cannot afford to stand aside. And one must ask then, if the neighboring countries who are not uh, equipped to help, uh, sorry, uh, the neighboring countries and those equipped to help do not come to help those who are under attack, they help the attacker. So then one must ask, why that is done? in whose name and to what purpose, Mm -hmm. and we need to ask ourselves about that. There is, of course, the security situation, uh, international security disorder, where NATO is a horrendous organization, yet there is no other alternative for a lot of other countries, because international security system is dysfunctional. Uh, UN is dysfunctional. So what should militarily weak countries do when they're in the situation of aggression? We on the left must hard think about having an answer to that question because when we don't have the answer to that question people go to the right Mm -hmm. and we need to understand that very clearly so i'm looking forward to uh having a conversation with you Uh, i'm happy to answer any questions and um there was too much to talk, I like to say uh, so yeah um if if there is anything i didn't say please ask Uh, happy to say and thank you for listening Right, so um, I too cannot understand how, at the current state, knowing maybe some people are simply blissfully ignorant, willfully or not, uh, knowing what the Russian army uh, is doing in Ukraine, and has been doing it uh, for quite some time, um, how can anybody suggest that uh, it could be somehow a good outcome that Russia wins? What do you imagine that victory to be like? Russia takes over Ukraine because that's what they're saying they want to have. Yes. Oh, you're not listening to what they're saying, just like you're not li- you haven't listened to me or to anybody on the left who actually engages with the material like we should be as historical materialists. And this is why I started my talk with that ledge. So, if uh, this war, this recent invasion, could have been absolutely prevented should there have been an adequate response to the first invasion by Russia. And in that sense, and that's why I mentioned that in Russia, Putin got involved, and again, this is not the first time that Putin's regime has violated international borders. He's been baiting international organizations for a very long time. Mind you, and I also mentioned it before, Putin's regime is not the first one that spat into the face of international law nor abused UN Security Council veto powers. And it, yes, we're in the United States. So, you know, you're quite familiar with what the United <laughs> States government does with all of those. And it is exactly that kind of sense of impunity and not giving an F uh, that the United States and Britain and France and, and others. Have treated and uh, used and abused their uh, privileges of a hierarchical structure of the of the United Nations and uh, their military advantages and all sorts of stuff. That kind of that gets thrown back into their face at the UN Security Meetings by Russia all the time, and they kind of do have a point, you know, like all the kind of horrors of war style. Because if we have, and this is why I refer to international security order as a disorder. Before we have a function in international security order, we will have these, to put it uh, in a very English way, aberrations. And we need to fix the broken international security order. And We need to, it need, it's the, international, the UN should it remain, should be horizontalized. Uh, uh, veto powers and permanent security members should cease to exist as an institution. Because we cannot have a couple of countries basically deciding how the rest are going to live and then not expect some sort of abuses to happen there. It was designed like that, intentionally, and that needs to go away. But that is a long-term plan that we all should be working towards internationally, together. But Ukrainians who are right now on the front line or sitting in the cellar do not have a luxury to wait 50 years. I will have you know. And so they take weapons from wherever they come. So we need to differentiate. I'm going to combine my responses kind of to different questions together and some kind of most separate. So we need to differentiate about the uh, we need to differentiate responses we have to these questions of international security ad Bellum and in Bellum. In 2013, we could have been having these conversations about Ukraine and Russia quite leisurely. In 2014, less so. Between 2015 and uh, February of this year, after ceasefire was agreed, me and my organization in Ukraine, uh, we were advocating negotiating paths. As soon as uh, people stopped killing each other, yes, we're not happy about Crimea being annexed, and that referendum was fake and stage, and it's ridiculous. Some constituencies had 120% votes. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> and a bunch of people left, and there were people, and there were people with rifles in voting booths. What kind of? Oh, uh Yeah, and if if some Russians who decided to retire in Crimea uh, and Ukraine allowed them to do so. Uh, decided that they're going to put up their flag there and say it's Russia now, then uh, pack your bags and pop back to Russia because you're in a foreign country you now. And you are completely abusing the generosity and the hospitality. So, in, the, uh, so in, in terms of these kind of... We thought that you know, as soon as people are not shooting each other, it's horrible, it's imperfect. Uh, these uh, puppets governments, administrations, proxies of uh, Russia in Donbas are, are horrific. And if any, uh, any of those who are defending them as some sort of people's republics actually bothered to read what they, uh, and learn what they were doing to people and workers in those republics, you probably wouldn't be advocating for them. Because there is plenty of evidence speaking about what to read. East Human Rights Group and the Center for Civic Liberties have been documenting what has been going on in the occupied territories between 2004, since the moment of invasion uh, of Crimea, and until right now. And there are plenty of reports of workers' rights abuses, persecution, kidnapping, harassment, torture, and worse. Since the most recent invasion, now these LNR and DNR authorities are hunting, hounding males of the population of those republics, force throwing them into the front. No, no proper training, half the time without weapons, they're just being thrown under the tanks. This, if you are advocating for Russia to win, this is what you are supporting, and you need to understand that. You need to understand that. 600,000 plus children, this is what Russia just admits. They have kidnapped from occupied territories, forced moved to Russia, and they are being now adopted in welcoming Russian families to make them into Russians. This is the definition of genocide. This is what's going to happen to every human being in those republics. Torture camps, concentration camps, filtration, rape, that's what you are supporting. And I cannot understand what has died inside you, to, for you to be okay with that. So in terms of what needs to happen, can, of course Ukraine cannot win if you forget forfeited today. A lot of leaders, German leader directly, German finance minister directly said it into the face of Ukraine's ambassador on the day of the invasion that there is no point in helping you in two days; it will be over, and we'll get used to the new state of things. Some of the uh, Americans, uh, American uh, politicians, uh, I can tell you in private conversations that I've been involved in some calls with around my uh, campaign to uh, cancel Ukraine's foreign debt. Has mentioned that uh, look, you, like a bunch of Ukrainian uh, activists, uh, so Ukrainian NGO workers, and the finance ministry debt workers uh, on the call and we're trying to kind of decide what kind of campaign to have. And uh, the American, oh, the it, I'll tell you. So um, Natalia Resko, who's the ex finance minister of Ukraine, uh, and she's in Puerto Rico now, as far as I, if I remember correctly. She said, look, you have to stop being timid. You have to understand every day politicians in Washington wake up, and go, oh, Ukraine is still standing. Nobody expected it to be. And that's why the response uh, in terms of uh, aid, especially military aid, has been so slow in the first weeks of the invasion. Because if Ukrainians didn't put up a fight and thousands of Kievans have died because Russians were inside Kiev, People with Molotovs were stopping tanks. And at some point in March, before Johnson went after Russia withdrew its troops from the North, and the horrors of Bucha were known, before that, US and uh, Germany and um, uh, Britain advised Zelensky to leave Kiev because it was a lost battle for them and go and set up in Lviv. And it was because of popular resistance of people in Kiev region, of territorial defense units, of cooperation between uh, of, uh, dwellers in occupied areas who lost their lives and were tortured, who were given away positions of the Russians to the military. It is because of them that Kiev wasn't lost. That rubbish story that was run last week, I think, about how, O Johnson arrived and convinced Zelensky. We, do we remember what was happening then? It was early April, it was after Russia withdrew from the north of Kiev, and the horrors of what they were doing there were not just you know, stories that were sent around through grapevine and like occasional telegram channels. All the reporters and politicians poured in there, and the outrage of Ukrainian population has peaked to the point where, should Zelensky have conceded and signed off some of the Ukrainian territory and some sort of agreement, he would have been the first one to have been slaughtered. And that would have been people's war against Russia at that point. Mm-hmm. The reason Zelensky didn't leave in the first instance, he's like this war hero and all of that kind of stuff. Everybody remembers this I don't need a ride, I need ammo. Well, he knew. That should he have left, there wouldn't have been one spot on this planet where Ukrainians wouldn't have found him and made him pay for that. So I do not know what happened in his head and what has made him make the decision that he did. I know that uh, from our recent mission, recent visit of Ukraine, me, Solidarity Campaign to Kiev and meeting with some MPs who are of progressive inclination. They said that uh, actually Zelensky's administration were a bit on the fence and uh, rather, uh, rather parliamentaries said we're not going anywhere. This is going to be the death of the country and the death of us. We have to stay here. And so for the first time, ironically enough, Ukraine has fully representative political class. Like So the Ukraine's political will, the people in charge, representing what are doing what the people want them to be doing, at least in terms of the uh, kind of military strategy. So we need to understand that because if you cannot fight for your self-determination when you don't have a country to stand on. Because the the way, you know, it's not NATO is all kind of good and jolly. Why why is Russia not invading Finland right now? Finland's joining NATO. Why has it not invaded the Baltic countries Or Poland, like, you know, Kaliningrad and, you know, Germany and uh, Poland are all encircling poor Kaliningrad, which is Koningsberg, by the way. So it's, it's such a nonsensical joke that it's, it's not even worth talking about, but we have to, and, you know, we have to re- respect and respond to things. But this whole thing about, inser- like, this NATO, it absolutely makes no sense. On top of all of this, it's in the statute of NATO that no country in the state of territorial dispute can ever become a member because it's a risk to everybody. Ukraine was already invaded in February this year. So it's just, it makes no bloody sense. I understand that people inside Russia who who watch a lot of um, uh, Russian TV are buying this, but it's, it's kind of frankly a bit embarrassing to be buying this here. Um, In terms of sanctions, it's a very controversial thing because on the one hand, of course, certain uh, punishment and retribution and, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it, reparations and all of that kind of stuff needs to happen. So there are a couple of things here. Can I get my water? please? Um, I do think that, you know, the indiscriminate nature to an extent of sanctions has very problematic and uneven effects. Uh, And in that sense, I I emphasize with the point that they do not quite deliver the necessary results, but also disproportionately harm some of the most vulnerable people in Russia. And in that sense, I think the the sanctions could have been useful and helpful, should they have been based not on the level of certain sectors or states, but rather class-based. Why are all the Russian oligarchs in the Mediterranean and in Florida on their big yachts and in their mansions? Arrest their assets. Arrest and actually liquidify and send them by humanitarian aid to Ukraine with that money. Oh, no, we can't do that, though, can we? Because if we go, if we will violate contractual law and that law and that law. And that <laughs> sets a horrible precedent uh, for going after all oligarchs who are the culprits of all of this mess.
0: And I'm talking about
1: international, global oligarchy, including American and British and the rest of it. You know, again, the mechanisms through which oligarchy can become it's what it is were created by British Empire and, you know, and Americans and, and you name it. You know, it wasn't something that post olig States invented. Um, right? So, So those kind of sanctions I would support. Other kind of sanctions, I have to say, you know, depending on what specifically we're talking about, I think some of them could be actually useful. But the way that it's kind of being done, I also understand that like it creates a lot of kind of unhelpful effects. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, sanctions actually harming food supplies um, around the world and kind of messing things up, it's a bit of a it's a it, it's a bit of a tricky story because. To some extent, it can be said so. But the, the thing is, like this, a lot of, uh, this is the line that uh, Russia is using, saying that this is basically the All of this food, cri- food crisis and, su- and supply crisis because sanctions are being put on us. But they are the ones who are blocking Ukrainian ports. About half of Ukrainian exports were going from Mariupol, which is screwed at this point. The rest were coming through at the overwhelming majority. You cannot move that same amount of grains by rail, even if you want to. Not the same volumes at the same speed. And it was Russians who were they basically, it was, Russians were blackmailing and pitching and kind of creating this kind of animosity and disagreement internationally by manipulating food, manipulating gas supplies. They're burning tens of millions of bucks worth of gas, just burning, just so they don't send it to Europe. The environmental impacts don't even get me started. Right. So we need to understand, kind of, that it's it's not always necessarily what it seems, kind of, on the on the surface. Um, right. So I think this is kind of kind of the bigger questions. I sort of I think I've addressed quick a couple of quick ones. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Yeah. The on terms in terms of what what to read, uh, I think it probably would be a good idea to to sort of maybe send an email around or something like that but um i think uh, yeah the, uh, the a list of Anglophone, north american based i think you can you can do yourself yep. in terms of uh, ukraine based um a kind of international but kind of ukrainian voices that's the commons oh. journal uh, and uh, our organization which is, uh, the sotsialny Ruch and the ukraine solidarity campaign we're doing a lot of really good stuff but also we put links to interesting critical study, it comes up, publication, Russian dissident, Russian uh, opposition, as in left, Russian left, um, publication, uh, website called POSLE, uh, publishes a lot of stuff in English, and uh, Ilya Budraev's case yes. is associated with that publication, so those are quite useful, but I think, no yeah, no. Okay, yes, yeah, so I think like making the list would be would be quite useful because also not everybody can kind of write down um, certain things too quickly. And I think in terms of, I'm just going to say one thing about solidarity, because we also have this kind of social, so we can discuss this um, uh, there in more detail, because then people also may want to go somewhere else. In terms of what needs to be done in terms of solidarity, so I think this is the kind of thing that... Also, kind of, I want to circle back to one of the first comments that I made: that this war could have been prevented should there has been an adequate response, and that response includes, um, included putting pressure on governments uh, in the in respective countries where we all are, those who oppose imperialistic wars everywhere. Again, that includes Iraq and that includes Syria and that includes Ukraine and then includes Abkhazia, all of them. So. Um, one of the reasons why also there is, uh, you know, support of uh, different governments for Ukraine and it has been has been sustained is be- precisely because of the popular support of, of citizens of those countries for support in Ukraine. That is something that Putin didn't didn't count on. Like, was, but there were comments that mentioned that you know there was um, he saw that it was basically he was told he was told this idea that it was going to be as easy as it was in the Crimea why he was so delusional, maybe the reason he doesn't use internet has something to do with it. <laughs> uh, but more but kind of jokes aside, uh, I think it's one of those um kind of uh, rotten regime symptoms where uh, if you create this kind of power vertical um in you know quite oppressive order, and like you know for over twenty years, you've been sort of. Uh, testing and sieving and getting rid of people who are do not agree with you and who are not singing you praises, you will end up with a very skewed idea of what's going on in your country or internationally. Mm-hmm. Because only those who tell you what you like to hear remain around you. And that, in the end, I think, is what will finish Putin's regime. Yeah. And we have seen a lot of failures at the front. It's been kind of quite embarrassing. Some of the stuff uh, that they come up with is, is quite, it's quite... Embarrassing doesn't begin to... I do not know what the word is. But like one of the recent gaps was when there was an inspection of International Ener- uh, uh, Atomic Energy Agency at the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. Some uh, sociologist slash, slash uh, entertainer uh, in a shiny Italian suit was explaining to all of these scientists that uh, the missile that, lo- that that's kind of stuck in the, in the Earth next to the power plant that looks like it came from occupied area. It's actually when it flies, when it hits there, it turns 180 degrees, and that's, what, that's how it ends up sitting. Seriously, the video is, on, is online, take a look at it. And that, it, 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 it would have been funny, but this is reality, like if it was an apocalyptic film, it would have been hilarious because it's so unrealistic, but this is reality. Right? So, yeah, so that's, yeah yeah, we need to we need to kind of stop. So I think building solidarity, putting pressure on governments, uh, talking to people, explaining to them what's going on, uh, amplifying voices and going kind of making sure to not to not uh, to not go with propaganda. Just because Ukraine is being done and this has been betrayed by its own oligarchs doesn't mean that you average Ukrainians should be shunted as well and denied help. This is what I'm going to leave. With. Thank
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.